You're listening to Illini Life Audio, messages from a community of Christian believers on the campus of University of Illinois at Urbana-Champaign. For more audio and video content, visit IlliniLife.org. Good morning. Uh, It is warmer for most of us. Uh, I'm uh, excited about that. You know, single digits was starting to feel normal, and uh, I'm, I'm glad that that's not the case anymore. So if you're at a watch party, welcome. I, I know the Norcross's watch party uh, looked like it was hopping this morning, so I'm glad to see those happening again. If you're on the Zoom watch party, welcome as well. I uh, hope you had a chance to meet those around you. Well, it's good to be back worshiping with you this morning. It's good to be back here on a Sunday I hope you've had a chance this week to jump in with your small group to dive into our passage uh, as we start our new series. We're back in the Old Testament, and I'm excited about that because we get to attack, we get to dive into a new book, the book of Isaiah, a book of prophecy, a genre that's different than we usually do, different than most evangelical churches do on a Sunday morning. It's an often misunderstood genre, and because of that, people often avoid it. I'm excited to dive into it with you. If you felt stretched in small group as you studied this passage or even as you prepared for this message this morning, you're in good company. I have as well. I think our teachers each week will as well. I think it's worth it. Stick with it. I'll have some handholds for you this morning that'll help us a little bit. So the start of this new series, it coincides with the season of Lent. Lent is the 40 days preceding Easter, well, give or take. Throughout church history, this period of time has been observed by Christians to prepare our hearts for the coming celebration of Jesus' resurrection on Easter. It's all about the biggest holiday in the church calendar, Resurrection Day. If you haven't yet, join us in the Lent reading plan that's on the YouVersion Bible app. It's been so great to interact with you all, see you engaging with the text, and, and hearing what the Lord is stirring in your hearts. I love engaging in the Word with you. I sent that out on Flocknote. Uh, maybe your small group leader has that, or, uh, or you can look on Flocknote for it. Uh, it's been a great time to, to engage with the Word and, and uh, see, let, let the Spirit stir in our lives. So as, we beginning, as we're beginning the season of Lent, I, I realize some of you, you maybe have grown up with, with that word being commonplace, or you understand this season as part of maybe your church background or, or your family's culture. And some of you may, may come from homes or, or even faith backgrounds where it's foreign to you, it's a new concept. So just briefly, this is the 40 days leading into Easter, as I said. They echo the 40 days of Jesus fasting in the wilderness before he starts his public ministry. In that way, the church has adopted the practice of fasting during, during this season. And so individuals will choose often throughout history to, to forego food items or, or fast during this period of time. I encourage you to do the same. It's a spiritual discipline that can really drive us back to God, that can, can cause us to focus and, and reorient. If possible, I, if it's you know, healthy for you, I, I encourage you, fast from food. That is the historic understanding of what fasting is in our faith. Hunger has this powerful force in our life that that can motivate us, that can remind us why we're doing what we're doing, why we're entering into this discipline. It can steer us back towards Christ. Now, fasting for 40 days, that's not really attainable. I don't think you should just not eat food for 40 days. Actually, I think that would probably be uh, very unhealthy to do. But you can do things like 
not eat meat for 40 days or uh, not eat dessert for 40 days or, or maybe you're going to choose one day a week and, and not eat while the sun is up during that. That's often what I do during Lent. And when we fast, though, during Lent, we, we don't just take things away. We put things back in. That's why the Lent reading plan, I'm encouraging you to jump into. We take time to pray. We take time to, to worship. We take time to read and engage with the word. So the time that we get back from, from these, sac- these sacrifices we're making, we're, we, give, we, we steer our hearts back through these other spiritual disciplines. I hope you'll engage in some of these practices during Lent. They're a great way for us to reorient our hearts and our minds and focus on Jesus as we prepare for Resurrection Day, the biggest event on our calendar, Celebration Sunday, Easter. Now, as we begin the same, this new series, we're going to be doing the same thing. We're going to be reorienting uh, our heart. We're going to be calling ourselves back to repentance and back to Jesus. Over these next five weeks, we're going to explore a sampling of passages from the book of Isaiah. Now, if you know anything about Isaiah, you know this book is really long, and we're not going to cover it in five weeks. I'll get there in a minute. Isaiah, he's, he's one of the most dominant, he is the most dominant Old Testament prophet. In fact, he's quoted by Jesus and the New Testament authors more than all of the other prophets combined. He had it. He knew what he was talking about. God was speaking through him, and it had an impact in the New Testament, a great impact in the New Testament. Now, he had a long-standing ministry, at least 40 years, maybe as much as 65 years. We're, we're kind of uncertain, but he, he was a prophet for decades. So the book of Isaiah, it covers a long span of time. It's a lot of territory, a lot of shifting historic landscape, different kings, different things going on in the surrounding nations and with God's people. His ministry, it takes place in the 8th century B.C., where we ultimately see the fall of the northern kingdom of Israel. We see the continued aggression and meddling of the superpowers of the day, Assyria, Babylon, and Egypt, if you know those names ring a bell. This is the final hours of the kingdom of Israel and Judah. That's when, that's when Isaiah is prophesying. Exile, it's imminent, and it's coming because of their disobedience and abandonment of God and his covenant with them. So with this backdrop, Isaiah prophesies. His message, it's largely to the kings. It's largely counsel to the kings that are steering this sinking ship of of the nation, of God's people. But it's also, it's also to the people. And through it all, he's calling them to repent and return to God. There's still time. There's still hope. Exile has not happened yet. Now, as I mentioned, the book of Isaiah, it covers a lot of ground. And over these next weeks, we're going to focus on four passages near the end of the book. These passages, they're commonly referred to as the servant songs. They develop this concept of God's true servant, the one that will bring justice, restore his people, model true obedience, and ultimately suffer in our place, atoning for our sins. This is why we're focusing on it for uh, Lent. Jesus is the incarnate servant of God. He fully fulfills all these prophecies we're going to see. As we work through these passages, we'll arrive at the one, one of the most profound images of Jesus recorded in the Old Testament. Hundreds of years 
before Jesus would go to the cross, hundreds of years before he was born and his ministry would happen, Isaiah prophesied, and we have it recorded in chapter 53, the suffering servant song. In detail, he describes the rejection and execution of Jesus on the cross. The atonement of sins. It's amazing. It's so exciting. I'm, I'm so anticipating these coming weeks, eagerly waiting for us to get to that message. As we engage with Isaiah these next weeks, I hope, my hope, is that we can develop a deeper awe and gratitude of God and his masterful work in salvation. We have a lot of groundwork to lay today before we can dive into these messages. We're going to get to these, these passages I just referenced in the coming weeks, but today I want us to do something a little bit different. Today, our message, uh, before we engage with Isaiah, we're going to take a look at some, some big questions about what is going on in prophecy. What, is the, what are the prophets? What are they saying? How do we read them? Why do they still matter today? In many ways, this, this first part of this message, the majority of, of what we're going to talk about in these immediate next minutes, is maybe more like a class. It's, it's, it's giving us the, the tools we need to be able to engage with the prophets. I hope that's helpful for you. So bear with me. Let's begin by asking a big question. What is prophecy? What is prophecy? How do we read it? How do we engage with it? Now, when I say that word prophecy, I'm sure more than a few of us think about predicting the future, right? Somebody talking about something way out there. You know, the telling of something, things that have not yet come to pass, things that will come. Well, that's true. Some prophecy does deal with future events. The vast majority of prophecy, like over 90% of prophecy, I would, I would venture to guess, is addressing the original audience, the original hearers, in their immediate context about what's immediately happening and is actionable by them right then. The vast majority of prophecy is for the hearers right then. Prophecy is inspired teachings or sayings from a prophet. Prophet, somebody who's called by God to speak to his people his message. The message is for those people. When we read the prophets in the Old Testament, we're reading their sermons or, or their accounts of their ministry, and it's in their days and their ways for their what's pressing needs right then, what's going on in God's, with God's people. Their message meant something to the people right then, even if it had a fuller meaning that would come to light later. And so as we read the prophets, we have to learn to think in oracles. And I'm going to use that word a lot. Uh, oracles, they're, they're chunks of thought. They're, they're sermonettes. They're, they're mini summary statements of sermons. You know, and, and a good translation, a good Bible translation will help you. You know, there'll be headings, they'll, they'll delineate this, there'll be spacings, there are ways to, to frame out what an oracle is, what a, what a teaching is. But oftentimes there's, there's clear uh, literary markers. So, you know, it'll say things like, uh, this is what the Lord says, and then there'll be an oracle. <laughs> Hear what the Lord says, and then there's the oracle. Woe to you! <laughs> and here's the oracle, right? These will be repeated phrases that you'll see that are just a clue to you. This is a new thought. This is a, 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 um, a, a chunk of thought from the prophet. And we think in oracles because oracles are the literary units of the prophets. This is their message. This is uh, just sort of their messages uh, strung together in, in their books. 
Often, oracles are going to, we're going to see them there in, in a poetic form. And, and so, in, like in all Hebrew poetry, we pay attention to parallel lines, to repetition, uh, to contrast. Just like when you read the Psalms or the Proverbs, it's, po- it's poetry. So it, it causes us to read a little differently than we read the New Testament narratives or, or Old Testament narratives. Oracles generally come in two flavors. You have doom and you have hope, right? You have judgment and blessing, right? There's, there's two types of oracles, two types of messages. Pastors often have two types of messages too. Most often the blessings followed the judgment uh, the, the bless- blessings are following the judgment and it's conditional if you if you repent the blessing will be yours judgment is coming repent and the blessing will be yours that's sort of the, the consistent message of the prophets the content of the or- oracles though content of the prophets teachings it's largely unoriginal here's the secret <laughs> The message of the prophets, it's almost always a reminder of the covenant. It's almost a reminder of the consequences of abandoning the covenant. See, their sermon notes, their their study is the, the covenant. That's what they're developing their messages from. That's the message God has given them to bring forward to remind the people. So to understand the prophets, we really need to be familiar with the covenant. We need to know, or at least be familiar with Deuteronomy and Leviticus, where it's outlined, where the law is, is detailed. And, and a good study Bible will be really helpful for you here, because it will offer cross-references of what the prophets are referring to back in the law, back in the covenant. For example, let me show you what I mean by this, because I think it's really helpful to have an example. Amos, he's another prophet a contemporary of Isaiah's, around the same time frame. And in chapter 2, we can read Amos give an oracle of judgment to Israel. As Amos gets going on the sins of Israel, we learn that they're, they are exploiting the poor, selling the poor for, sand, for a pair of sandals. Another human being sold so that they could have another pair of shoes. They're ignoring the needs of those around them, And then he goes on and he says this. They lay themselves down beside every altar on garments taken in pledge. To which we wonder, what's the sin there? Right? That that, that doesn't compute to us. Selling the poor for gain. Okay, we get that. That makes sense. That's sinful. Ignoring those with needs. Okay, that's selfish. I can get that. Laying down on garments taken in pledge. Are we only supposed to stand up with garments taken in pledge? I mean, what's going on, right? Like, that's confusing for us. It's not our immediate context. What's going on here? Well, the cross-reference here in most Bibles will point back to Deuteronomy chapter 24. Here's a subset of that. Here's, here's what, what it's referring to. This is the law. When you make your neighbor a loan of any sort, you shall not go into his house to collect his pledge. You shall stand outside... And the man to whom you make the loan shall bring the pledge out to you. And if he is a poor man, you shall not sleep in his pledge. You shall restore to him the pledge as the sun sets, that he may sleep in his cloak and bless you. And it shall be righteousness for you before the Lord your God. 
So the sin Amos is calling out in this garments taken and pledged that they're laying down on, it's further exploitation of the poor. You see, if a poor man in, in ancient Israel, if a poor man needed a loan and he had nothing else to offer but his cloak, his outer garment, what kept him warm at night? He would offer, he would, he would get the loan and he would offer that as security so that he would work to pay back the loan. He'd give his garment to, to, the, to his uh, debtor. Now, at night in the desert, when the sun goes down, it gets very cold. If you've ever been to a desert, you, you probably realize this. It's fascinating. It's the same in ancient Israel. They're in a desert. And so God made provision that the poor man who has nothing but his cloak to keep warm at night and is in debt and needs to take a loan will get his cloak back to not freeze through the night. And so what is Amos saying? He's saying, you are not only selling the needy for another pair of shoes, you are literally taking the jackets off of the poor men to leave them to freeze overnight. It's deeper exploitation of the poor. He cares deeply about how they're treating those in need, those that are the most vulnerable in their society. See, some of the key sins of Israel at this time was how they treated others, specifically those that were the most disadvantaged in their society. How they exploited their fellow man, the inequality in their society, the systems of oppression that they had established. Context, it helps us understand in greater detail why this was a problem. Why Amos has to call it out. Why Isaiah will call it out. So like reading all scripture, the context is super helpful for us to grasp the message. It helps us understand what is going on. Understanding the context of the prophets and what they are speaking about, it helps us tremendously. It helps us wrap our mind around why this mattered to God. The majority of their context, the majority of their background can be gotten by understanding the law, the promises, and the consequences of those. That's what cross-references will do when it tells you to look back at Deuteronomy or Leviticus. Now, you don't, you don't have to be a PhD in Old Testament studies to be able to do this, though. Like I said, a good study Bible will be really helpful for you here. It'll offer cross-references. It'll offer also footnotes with context and, and helping you to understand historically what's going on. All this gives you a bigger picture to understand the message of the prophets. I know many of you saw this as you engaged with Isaiah chapter 6. I heard many of you looking at your footnotes and, and cross-references this week. I love that that happened. Keep doing it. It's going to be important as you engage with the prophets. Now, at this point, I think it's valid. I think it's worth asking a question. Why does prophecy matter? I'm sure more than a few of you are thinking about it. Why does any of this matter, Nick? You know, if these were judgments for Israel and Judah hundreds of years ago, why does this matter? This was before Jesus. We're under the new covenant. Why does it matter to us today? Doesn't Jesus change it all? Aren't we not under the law? Aren't we given a new covenant in the blood of Christ? Yes, absolutely. We are under the covenant of the blood of Christ. 
Grace abounds. We are free from the law. Absolutely. But this matters because the past repeats itself. Israel, they were blessed by God. They were his chosen people. They knew him. They were in relationship with him. And they were called to share that with others. Yet they went astray. They abandoned their relationship with God. They, became, they made it into empty ritual. They carved up their hearts in devotion to other gods and their wealth and their prosperity. They forgot what it meant to be God's chosen people. They exploited the poor and looked out for their own self-interests. They became, they became ethnocentric and nationalistic to a fault. They thought God couldn't help but bless them. He'd given them the land. He was going to be their God and bless them no matter what. They lost sight of things. Does any of this sound familiar? It sure does for me. Every time I read the prophets, every time I read them calling out Israel, I'm reminded of the American church. The American church is not unlike Israel in the days of the prophets. And we are the American church. I am part of the American church. The reason we're not unlike it is because the nature of sin is still the same. It turns us inward. It causes us to, to draw towards our selfish needs and self-sufficiency. It causes us to distrust God's goodness. That's the heart of what happened in the garden. It makes us look out for ourselves above others. Sin, it, it blinds us to the ways that we reject God's direction and replace it with our own. Replace it with our own self-preservation, own self-prosperity. Think about it. We, we build bigger and bigger churches and expand our programs and spend more money on nicer dwellings when people go hungry in our neighborhoods. We, we fight for the rights of unborn children and we deny the rights of children ripped from their families at our borders. We uphold systems of oppression and inequality because they've made us rich and prosperous on the backs of those who don't look like us. The church, the American church, we don't look all that different than Israel and Judah in their days, in the days of the prophets. It's a heavy word. This is why the prophets are important to us. They hold up a mirror to us as God's people. They reveal God's heart and they draw people back to him before it's too late. Before their worship of self condemns them ultimately to destruction. The prophets, they remind us of the heart of God. The heart of God that has always been for people, all people, all beyond Israel, was for the nations. The heart of God has been for the ethical, equitable, and humane treatment of people throughout all time. That hasn't changed with the covenants. And when the prophets call that out in Israel, it's still true today if we see the same practices in our lives. 
And Jesus even affirms that the love, that the primary motives for us need to be love of God and love of neighbor. It didn't change with Jesus. It was just deepened with Jesus. Now, I have so much more to say on this. And if you've been around me in recent years, you know I have a lot more to say on this topic. But we need to really continue on because this is a message about Isaiah. <laughs> so let's keep going. Uh, I want to briefly, as we're, as we're you know, wrapping things up this morning, I want to give you a, an overview of Isaiah, the book. So I want you to have, understand the framework that we're working within. And then I want us to look at, at uh, a short passage in Isaiah and then, and then we're going to conclude. So as I mentioned earlier, Isaiah is the most prominent prophet in the Old Testament. His ministry ran for decades. Through multiple kings, the fall of the northern kingdom, the siege of Jerusalem under Assyria, and then church tradition holds, you read this in in Hebrews, that he was sawed in two while he was alive. He was sawed in two by King Manasseh, uh, who is a wicked leader whose sins ultimately lead to the destruction of Judah. Now that's coming beyond the scope of this book, but that's who Isaiah is. That's what we generally know from church tradition and history about him. Now, he's, he's prophesying, Isaiah's prophesying, coming off a period of great prosperity in Israel and Judah. Despite this prosperity, the people, they have, they have gone astray. The nation has gone astray. The kings have gone astray. They're worshiping other gods. They've abandoned God's law. They're making alliances with other nations for protection rather than trusting in God as the prophets are directing them to. And Isaiah, he's active, essentially, in the final hours, the final years of these kingdoms. Judah, it won't go off into captivity from, uh, by Babylon for like another hundred years after he's dead, but, but it's still the final hours in the grand scope of the kingdom. The writing's on the wall. Within 20 years, the northern kingdom of Isaiah's beginning his ministry, the northern kingdom will fall. Isaiah, he sees the writing on the wall even for Judah, even though it's beyond his, the scope of his life. He looks past the superpower of his day, Assyria, and he sees that Babylon will come. He even names the, the leader who will, who will come and take the people off to captivity. He will take them out of the land for 70 years. But he offers hope that they will come back. It's a beautiful prophecy in the end of, of, these, uh, the end of Isaiah's book. Now, now the book of Isaiah, it, it breaks down. I like to give you this chart of visual, because I'm so visual, uh, this chart of how the book breaks down. There's two main sections with this brief historic interlude in the middle. The first section of Isaiah, it's, it covers chapters 1 through 35. It focuses on human attempts at self-sufficiency. And this section it's calling out the sin of, of Israel, of God's people. It's, it's heavy on judgment and the failings of the people and the nations. Human self-sufficiency and its failings, maybe, is the way you can think about these 35 chapters. Then chapters 36 through 39, this historic interlude, this, this sort of break in the prophet's teachings. And we, we hear all about King Hezekiah and how he responds to the Assyrian siege that's happening on Jerusalem. We learn about his blunders with the foreign nations and his uh, bad foreign policy, essentially. And then the final section of the book, the final uh, teachings of the prophet, cover, uh, are covered in chapters 40 through 66, the end of the book. Here the prophetic oracles, uh, uh, are, they resume again, and it's all focused on God's answer to human insufficiency. The beginning of the book tells us how it failed. The end of the book tells us how God is sufficient. 
Salvation and comfort abound in this section. We meet the servant of God who we're going to study in these coming weeks. Now, fun fact. Isaiah, his name means Yahweh saves, which is super applicable because the core of his message is all about salvation through God, not through human self-sufficiency, not through worshiping idols, not through alliances with other nations, not through trusting in yourself. Salvation is through God. Yahweh saves. This, the book, it's, uh, I describe it as, it's littered with messianic images. And, and actually, this is why the book is so quoted in the New Testament, because those that encountered Jesus saw these messianic images fulfilled in Christ, in completion. Now, through, through Isaiah, we get an expanded view, of, expanded understanding of what the, who the Messiah will be, what he will be like. He gives us new names and new references, new ways of thinking about it. Emmanuel, Davidic ruler, Davidic child, branch or shoot from the stump of Jesse, cornerstone, righteous king, servant of God, anointed one. These are all the names for the Messiah that Isaiah uses and prophesies about. Salvation through the Messiah. It's at the forefront of the book of Isaiah. It's at the forefront of his ministry. Well, let's, let's meet Isaiah. Let's turn to uh, hear his commissioning from God. We'll turn to chapter 6. If you have a Bible, you can do that. If not, we, we try to put the words up on the screen for you to follow along. This chapter, this chapter 6, it's about 13 verses. It's, it's short. It's filled with majestic descriptions, death and life contrasts, and salvation. Let's read in the year of King Uzziah, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up. The train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face, and with two his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. So, so right off the bat, we have an event that locates this in history, right? Uzziah, king of Judah, he died in 740 or 739 BC. He's, he's reigned for 52 prosperous and successful years. The loss of this king, it caused instability, insecurity in Judah. This long-standing king has died. But that loss is immediately contrast with God sitting on the throne, ruling over creation. God is the true king in control. Right off the bat, that's the image we're giving. He's ruling despite the death of this earthly king, despite the unsettledness that that has brought. And there's, there's, a majest, there's majesty, there's awe in this vision, isn't there? The train of his robe, it's flowing and it's filling the whole temple. It's reaching down and touching creation, the temple where God dwells among his people. There's angelic beings that are flying around. And they're calling out. Angelic beings, the seraphim, are calling out the holiness and glory of God. In fact, three times they call out holy. Holy, 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 right? 
which is, which is a Hebrew way of creating emphasis. Right? In Hebrew, if you repeated a word, it magnifies it. Right? Uh, that, that's common uh, in their language. To repeat it three times only happens with God. That's why you see this, this phrase, holy, holy, holy. When, when that happens, it makes it unimaginable, so far beyond. It's the super superlative. It's, it's the uh, super emphasis. It's something so supreme we can't even grasp it. We don't even have a concept of what it's like in our earthly uh, bounds. God is holy beyond compare. That's what, the, that's what that means. And all creation is overflowing with his glory. That's what these angels are saying. Now Isaiah, like any of us, stands in awe at this sight. He goes, he goes beyond that. He considers himself dead, having seen, having looked upon the Lord, being before his presence, even in, just through a vision. Let's keep reading and see what happens. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips. And I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King and the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to him, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin is atoned for. This divine encounter, it manifests in, in the usual ways. Creation quaking, smoke obscuring the form of God. Isaiah, he assumes he's as good as dead. This must be his end. You see, he knows his speech has not been sinless. And as he looks upon God, he is, in, he is convicted of his sin. He doesn't just stop with conviction, though, does he? He goes on to connect himself with the people he's been around, embracing the corporate identity. They have sinned too. We are an unclean people. He embraces the consequences of their collective sin. He believes he'll bear the consequences, the ultimate consequence. And this is important that he identifies with the other people because, as we'll see, if Isaiah can be forgiven, so can the people. Isaiah is one of them. The corporate consequences go both ways. The angelic being flew to him with a hot coal. It presses it to his lips. It cleanses his unclean lips as he's called out. He's declared guilt-free. His guilt has been taken away. His sin has been atoned for. See, Isaiah, he walks the path of conviction, repentance, atonement, and salvation here. Death is no longer expected. He has been saved. He has been atoned for. We are invited to do the same. As we experience the living God, even the seemingly minor sins in our lives, they feel weighty on our soul. They feel heavy. We're driven to repentance. Isaiah felt he had unclean lips and thought he would die as a result. See, Isaiah encountered God and he was convicted. As we draw near to God, we likewise 
ought to have a receptive mind and heart, yielding to the conviction of sin in our life, moving to repentance and trusting God for our atonement, being declared guilt-free. And so Isaiah, with his vision obscured by the smoke, he can only hear the Lord. And so as we continue to, to read, we'll see him communicating with God and receive his commission. Let's keep reading. And I hear the voice of the Lord saying, Whom shall I send and who will go for us? And I said, Here I am, send me. And he said, Go and say to this people, Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but do not perceive. Make the hearts of this people dull and their ears heavy, and blind their eyes, lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. So having been atoned for, having been restored, Isaiah is in relationship with the holy God. He's in conversation, responding to his voice. And he eagerly declares, here I am, send me. I will be your messenger. To which God gives Isaiah his first divine message to bring to the people. Which, let's just be honest, is really confusing. I know many of you engaged with this in your small group and scratched your heads this week. Right? He's, he's told to go tell the people to keep on hearing but not understanding. Keep on seeing but not discerning. Or, or, or else if they did, that they would hear and be healed and saved, right? What's going on with this? What, why is this the message? Many, many they call this the, the prophetic dilemma, right? Isaiah, like all prophets, he is sent to a people who are resisting God. They're resisting his truth. They've turned away from it. The only way for them to be won back to God is to hear of him and hear of his truth. Yet that's already what they've heard and rejected. That's already what they've turned their backs on. The truth they rejected is the only path to salvation and healing. So Isaiah must try. There are people that are hearing and aren't understanding already. Yet he has to go and give the same message. I'm sure all of us, we've experienced in our life, lives a, a friend or a family member, someone we've, we've prayed for for so long that they would know Jesus. We've shared Jesus with them. We've invited them to small group or to church. And yet they reject the truth or they reject the invitation over and over again. They continue to reject the option to encounter God and encounter his truth. Like Isaiah, we must emphatically respond, here I am, send me, and keep inviting and keep sharing. It's the only message for salvation is God and his truth. That's what Isaiah is sent with. Now, to close out the passage, let's see this final exchange between Isaiah and the Lord. Because he's got some questions, Isaiah does. Isaiah, he goes on, he asks God, how long do I have to carry this message, God? How long do I have to, to give this message to a people who are unresponsive to it? This is what the Lord says. It says Isaiah says, then, then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until the cities lie waste without inhabitant. And the houses without people in the land is a desolate waste. 
And the, remor- the Lord removes people far away, and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. And though a tenth remain in it, it will be burned again, like a terebinth or, or an oak whose stump remains when it is felled. The holy seed is its stump. Okay, <laughs> right? A lot going on there. Isaiah, he, he understands the hardness of his message. He asks, how long must I speak this message that the people are already rejecting? To which God, God responds in, in a very merciful way that we might not easily see. He tells Isaiah to keep speaking the message until there is no one left to hear it. Until the cities are empty and destroyed, until the houses have no inhabitants in them, until the land is laid waste, speak my truth, is what he tells Isaiah. Exile is coming. In less than 20 years, the northern kingdom will fall and be carried off by Assyria, never to be restored again, never to return. Yet there is still time for Judah, still time even for the northern kingdom. They remain, the, the, Judah will remain for, for some time after, after Isaiah's message before they ultimately fall to Babylon. So Isaiah, he must carry the message of the Lord, calling the people back until he can't any longer, until there's no one left to hear it. And so he does. For the entire rest of his life, he carries this message. Until his death, he prophesies and calls God's people back in repentance, back to God. Yet, we see in this passage, even when all seems lost, the tree that has been cut down and burned, a stump remains. We're told that stump is the holy seed, an image Isaiah will pick up and share later. The shoot of Jesse will grow out of, the shoot of Jesse being David's line, Jesse being David's father. Messianic images abound here. The stump is the start of it. God's people, see, they were never truly lost in captivity. A remnant remained, and they would be brought back. Isaiah shared that with them. The Messiah would come from those that were restored. The stump would give new life. This is the beginning of Isaiah's prophetic message, and it's the consistent thread through his message for his entire ministry. Salvation through the Lord. And this morning, we have covered a lot of ground. And I understand that it was different than our normal sermons, different than our normal messages. I hope you've tracked with me. As we begin this season of Lent, I want us to reflect on the message of the prophets. That's what we're doing here in our new series. The message of the prophet, it matters to us today because sin is still alive and leading God's people astray. Isaiah called the people back to God, back to the foundations of their faith and to trust in God, to trust in him. As the church, we still need to hear this message today. As we go through Lent, let us repent and return to Jesus in whatever ways we are feeling convicted. Let us repent and return. Let's focus on the ways that we need to repent and return as a church as a society, as individuals. As we walk through this season, let us consider God and yield as his spirit convicts us of sin in our lives. Let us repent and be transformed 
and be renewed by that. Renewed in our thinking and restored in our belief. Let us set our gaze on Jesus, the true servant of God, the suffering servant who atones for our sins and declares us guilt-free. So Alane Life, as we walk through Lent, let us repent and return to Jesus. Will you pray with me?